When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Prince Philip is home. The fallout from the Meghan and Harry interview rumbles on. Kate paid moving respects on Clapham Common with some daffodils for murdered Sarah Everard and the Cambridge children shared their Mother's Day cards for Granny Diana, which was very cute. But we're going to save all of that for next week. And who knows what other royal news there may be in between times as well, because we've let Russell have a well-deserved week off. And that is also a great excuse to finally bring you one of the much promised, much trailed special guest interviews. So we are keeping the focus on Kensington Palace and taking a peek behind palace walls. Hope you enjoy it. Pod save the Queen! Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the Queen. I am your host, Anne Gripper, and we have a special guest today. It is Tom Quinn, author of Kensington Palace, an intimate memoir from Queen Mary to Meghan Markle. You may have spotted it when it was out last year in hardback, and it's now out in paperback. And I'm delighted to have Tom join us on the show today. Hi, Tom. Hi, thank you. How are you, how are you doing? I would imagine you've had an interesting year since the book first came out. Yes, I have. I mean, actually, I think I've benefited because um, with people not being able to go on holiday and do all the things that they might normally do, uh, there's been a lot more interest in uh, books. More books have been sold, amazingly. And I, th- I think uh, there's always been a lot of interest in the royal family. And amazingly, no one's ever written a book until um, this one, as far as I know, about um, Kensington Palace. There have been kind of books about the architecture and so on, very serious books, but not so much about the people, the eccentrics, the oddballs who, who actually live there, which is, which is what my book covers. It's the classic thing of if these walls could talk, I think, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because a lot of the people I spoke to, I mean, this all started with the book when back in the 1980s, I happened to meet someone, an elderly former domestic servant who worked for the royal family. And um, I, I got chatting to him and it was it was so interesting. And he passed me on to other people who worked either at Kensington Palace or Buckingham Palace. And I thought, these memories are amazing, you know, and they will disappear if someone doesn't write them down. So over the years, I've kind of used that material uh, and material from many other people I interviewed who know the Royals or work with them or for them to, to create a series of books. I mean, I've done books on the Queen Mother's most famous servant, a guy called Backstairs Billy. I've done this book on Kensington Palace. I've done books on Edward VII. And a lot of it is personal memories people who were there or whose parents were there. So what what did they say it was like to work at Kensington Palace? Um, the, the people I spoke to, their careers went back as early as the 1930s and 40s when it was very different. I mean, servants at that time um, or domestic servants had to be virtually invisible. 
I mean, there wasn't there this sort of democratization where, uh, you know, if you work there now, or you've worked there in the last 20 or 30 years, um, the members of the royal family, they tend to, they'll chat to the people who work there, they're, they're more friendly. But back in the 30s and 40s, there was this huge divide because um, there wasn't this feeling you had to be nice to people lower down the social scale. Um, I think also a lot of it was very old fashioned. Um, one former servant who worked there uh, just after the war and into the 50s told me that um, if you met a member of the family while you were going about your, you know, this this was a woman who was a maid, you had to turn and face the wall. You couldn't look at them. You, you weren't allowed to look at them or say good morning. And of course, that would have completely changed now. And most days people would eat, I mean, the, the, the residents would eat on from solid silver. They and there was a very elaborate ritual. For example, you couldn't, a, a, a little circular would go around the palace saying, on Tuesday, um, the Duchess of wherever, Duchess of Kent or wherever, will, will be leaving the palace to have for a hair appointment at 11 a.m. And that meant that no one in the palace could leave before the Duchess left for her hair appointment. And that continued up to the period when Princess Margaret and, and even Diana lived at the palace. So very old fashioned in many ways. Um, they didn't like, when Hoovers came in and other labour saving devices, they didn't like them because they were considered, they were considered a bit vulgar and, and might make other people think we couldn't afford to have a, a row of maids on their knees with, with dustpans and brushes cleaning the carpets. So they're always a bit behind the times. Although I think in, in certainly in the last 30 years, that's completely changed. And everyone is very friendly to the servants. Uh, it's very different. And the, the whole building has been modernised several times. So it is very different now. Do you think that change in sort of atmosphere and relationship between the, the residents and the servants, is it, was that down to society changing and evolution? Or was it down to changes in the people who were living in the palace? And, the, you know, if we think about Princess Diana and the kind of the impact that she had in terms of, I don't know, humanising, I guess, the royal family in a lot of ways. Was, was she influential in, in behind closed doors as well, do you think? I think Diana was massively influential in, in the change in attitudes to the people who worked in the palace. She was much more informal. She didn't tend to think of it as an us and them thing. She, came very, she became very close friends with people who worked for her. So I think that's true. But she came... Uh, towards the end of a massive shift in the way uh, people uh, people who were well-educated and wealthy, in the way those people looked at people lower down the social scale. I think after the war, um, it became increasingly difficult to get domestic servants. They could go and work in factories. And domestic service was never popular. There was a phrase several servants, you, uh, former domestic servants, use this phrase. They said, oh, there was the shame of the cap and the apron. So as soon as they could leave domestic service, they did. And in the 1950s, it was very difficult or increasingly difficult, even for the royal family, to get people to work for them as maids, domestics, butlers and footmen, because they could get paid more, more elsewhere. And so in order to keep them, they had to start being nice to them. Um, so they get they were given more time off. They were paid more. Um, I, I I remember one domestic servant told me that uh, she'd worked for an elderly woman who lived at Kensington Palace, who was a distant relative of the Queen, 
who basically had a grace and favour apartment at Kensington Palace. Because people forget there were about 50 people who lived there at any one time, not just the famous people like Catherine and William. Anyway, this elderly um, servant told me that in the late 1950s, she'd considered leaving. And the woman she worked for at Kensington Palace, who was very aristocratic, was in tears and begged her not to leave. And they had a conversation about this. And it turned out this aristocratic elderly woman had never made a cup of tea in her life. She had no idea how to turn the oven on. So she would have been completely stranded if if her, you know, the, the woman I interviewed had left. And so the, the balance of power had shifted. Um, but then that led on to a situation where it became almost shameful to look down on people for being poor or, or from a different social class. And of course that fitted very much with Diana's view of the world. I mean, it's a great story about Diana that um, I, I was the first to, I mean, I, I got this story from a domestic servant. It's never been publicized apart from in my book. Um, I know I'm boasting, but it is true. <laughs> Where Diana used to get really fed up of the sort of gilded cage atmosphere in the palace. You know, she couldn't leave, no one, none of the senior royals can leave Kensington Palace without a security detail, without telling people that they're going. So it's a kind of prison. It may be gilded, but it's still a cage. So Diana used to put dark glasses on and a sort of headscarf or, or, or a floppy hat and a big coat and, and leave without telling anyone, which was really, you weren't supposed to do this. And one, one day she wandered off towards the Round Pond. And anyone who knows Kensington Palace will know that not far away, the palace overlooks this wonderful... Uh, round pond which was dug in the 18th century um, and she anyway Diana wandered off to this pond she just happened to sit it was summer and she sat on the end of a bench not noticing on the other end of the bench that a tramp was asleep and the tramp woke up and he I don't think he had a clue who she was but started chatting to her and she talked quite happily to him for about sort of 20 minutes and he even offered her a drink from a very suspicious looking bottle in his pocket. Um, but she was apparently delighted at this. They, they'd had such a nice conversation. Um, and it just shows that then she got up and sort of wandered off and did something else. But it shows that, you know, that never would have happened in the past. It's very typical of Diana, who, although she was a princess, she didn't really have the sort of airs and graces that you might expect from a princess. So I think in that sense, she, it really was true that she was a sort of people's princess. So set the scene for us. We're in we're in London, Kensington Palace. I mean, I I know it from I went. I think it was about two years ago. I went and visited with um, a former colleague Amber Graff, and we had a lovely visit to Kensington Palace and got a little tour around Princess Diana's dresses that were being um, exhibited there. The sort of big gates and a big sort of driveway and a bit of a colonnade situation and a, and the grand front and then there's some gardens. But to have fifty people living there and everything else going on and then you you know you read about sort of princess eugenie's cottage in the grounds and the cottage that megan and harry used to live in in the grounds it's like how how do all of these people fit in where is it where is it all set up yes it's very confusing actually because when you look at the palace from the outside it doesn't seem particularly enormous so to get 50 people living in various apartments and cottages in the grounds it doesn't seem possible. It's like the TARDIS in Doctor Who, you know, where you go inside this tiny building and it actually turns out to be enormous. Um, but it's deceptive because the bits of the palace that you can visit as a, as a tourist, in fact, are the most interesting bits because they're unchanged since 
um, the original house was bought by um, King William, uh, William of Orange in the late 17th century. And those bits miraculously were not altered in, in succeeding uh, uh, centuries. They were not sort of scraped and rebuilt inside. Um, but behind those bits of, I mean, many people, I've been many times to those uh, bits that you can visit. And, you know, you come out and think, well, actually, there, there, there doesn't seem to be that much. But if you go behind the bits that the public are allowed to see, it's actually enormous. There's a huge courtyard called um, Clock Court. And, and uh, the, the apartments which are arranged around that courtyard and another courtyard and behind towards the stables, they're actually much bigger. I mean, if you look for an aerial shot of the palace, you get some idea it really is it's quite a substantial palace. But of course, that's not obvious from the outside and you're not allowed to visit Clock Court. It's not part of, so you would never guess. Um, and I mean, the other thing, you take um, uh, William and Catherine, who, who are the most senior royals who live there at the moment. They're, they live in apartment 1A, which, you know, makes it sound like a sort of the basement of a terraced house. In fact, it's absolutely enormous. Um, it's much bigger than a, you know, a big London house. Uh, but it's, but so, so that is difficult to understand. And but there are odd sort of glimpses you can get until fairly recently. If you're in, if you're in the long gallery uh, that was, that, that was there, that the public can visit where uh, William and later Queen Anne um, and the, and the Georges, where they exhibited their wonderful pictures. If you're standing in that long gallery, say 25 years ago, you could look um, through the glass and you would, um, you could sort of see towards the, the apartments where members of the royal family actually live. But then they change the glass. It's very clever. If you look through the glass now, you think, oh, well, it's the original, probably 18th, 19th century glass panes, because you can see out onto the gardens, you can see across the park. But if you move sideways and try to look towards where William uh, uh, and Catherine and the other uh, royals live, suddenly you can't see through the glass. It's incredibly clever. But that just shows you how they try to keep the two, you know, the public bits and the private bits completely separate. It's like a, it's almost like a village where the royals live. And unless you're a royal, you don't really get a glimpse of it. Oh, so King's Thursday, I hope that answers um, your question largely. Um, and then there's a few people, and me included, who'd like to know what it's like living there. In my head, it's a bit like a massive hall of residence. But Cara Menendez says, is it set up like an apartment building where you might see each other, um, see other residents in the hall? Adrienne Rutherford. Hi, Adrienne, long time listener. Do the royals that live there run into each other or are their apartments really spread out? And Christine Reapy, she wants to know, are there underground secret passages, tunnels and trapdoors? Um, the, the, the residents live, because there's so much of it, it's designed in such a way that they, the residents do bump into each other, but not as often as you might think, because it's not like a hall of residence where you would walk along a corridor um, and bump into someone coming out of their, the door of their apartment. It's not like a block of flats. People, people have their own exits and entrances which lead outside they don't lead along a sort of communal corridor, um, but they do bump into each other. And at the moment, there, there is a process uh, going on where an enormous um, uh, underground, well, I suppose a, ba a basement makes it sound quite small, but it will be huge. It will go from underneath the palace to the orangery 
which is slightly to the north of the palace, the orange built by Queen Anne, it won't disturb anything above ground, but it will be absolutely huge. And the purpose of that underground um, part of the building is to house all the sort of PR stuff um, that William and Catherine need now and will need when eventually William becomes king because um, it's all the backup, it's all the officers, it's the office for um, everything that they need to support them. At the moment, that's all jumbled up in the rest of the palace. So this is this will then mean that um, William and Catherine, their apartment will not it will be bigger and it won't be mixed in with the sort of the admin side of what goes on. So there will be that huge basement. There are other cellars um, that, that have been there for centuries, but they're, they're not really used for anything. There was, a, there was a big wine cellar. That's no longer there. I mean, lots of these changes happened in the 1950s and 60s, especially Princess um, Margaret and Lord Snowden. Lord Snowden fancied himself as an interior designer, so he ripped out a lot of... Very beautiful. I mean, I'm saying this. A lot of people would say, oh, well, it's, it's bound to happen. It's good to modernise it. But for me, it was rather sad because they ripped out um, a lot of 18th century um, uh, cupboards and bookcases to modernise their apartment. They lived in apartment 1A2, the apartment that, um, that uh, William and Catherine now live in. Um, but the kitchen that, that they installed that Lord Snowden thought was the latest in, you know, it was a sort of habitat kind of, uh, it's difficult to describe it, in a way a typical but very upmarket 60s design, that too has all been ripped out. Um, so they live in what really, their apartments are really quite modern. I mean, take for example William and Catherine's apartment, it's deceptive because uh, it's very sort of beige, very beautiful early pictures on the very traditional pictures. I mean, they don't have Mark Rothko's, they've got sort of Gainsborough's, and but um, it, although it looks a sort of classical design, it's all modern. Um, the only really early bits are those bits that the public can see, and the other apartments that people live in, they're the same, they've been they've been scraped and redesigned inside, although most of the royals and the other. I mean, the, the other residents tend to be retired courtiers they're, or they're retired military people with a connection to the, to the crown. They do pay to live there, but they don't pay. I mean, it's not, it's not going to be as expensive as it would be, you know, to live in that part of London if you were paying the full market rate, although they do pay, they don't pay a peppercorn rent. Um, the, there are some funny stories about royals bumping into each other. I mean, Princess Margaret, bizarrely, when she lived there, uh, she found that the man who prevented her wedding to a uh, group Captain Townsend, that was the famous, um, you know, love affair of the 50s, where she fell in love with one of the royal equerries, group Captain Townsend, wanted to marry him, but unfortunately he was divorced. I mean, the story's well known. So the marriage couldn't go ahead, and really... Um, uh, for Princess Margaret, that was a disaster. She was unhappy for the rest of her life. Um, but sorry, I'm making a lot of this story. But the reason I mention it is that the man, the equerry who was most involved in stopping her marrying the man she loved, unfortunately for Margaret, also lived in Kensington Palace. He retired and he lived in the converted stable block. And apparently every time she was driving out or being driven out of the palace and she happened to see him 
she would sh- shout to her her chauffeur, "Run that man down!" <laughs> <laughs> so they did run into each other, but you know, it's, it wasn't always uh, in a happy way. <laughs> <laughs> sounds sounds not so much. Um, a couple of things that you touched on there um, reflect on some other questions that have come in from listeners. Holly Diamond asks, who is the official landlord? How are the apartments allocated? Because if you've, you've got all of these people, some royals, some friends of the royals, I guess, but pay, paying their rent and things, who, who gets to live? Who do I need to butter up to be able to move into apartment seven? Well, <laughs> extraordinarily... Um, uh, the Queen is is the landlord. Um, of course, she's not going to sit down and work out who personally who lives there and how much they pay and so on. But the royal household, which is effectively the, the Queen Elizabeth, they they run the building. Although the bit the part of the building where visitors can can go along and look at the historic rooms that's that's the charity historic palaces uh, um, which which funds itself. That's completely separate from the part of the palace, which is actually a residence for many people. You, there are a few people who pay a market rent and are not connected with the royal family, incredibly, who live there. But every now and then, if you, if you were to look up a very, a very grand estate agent, you might find it possible to rent an apartment. But people tend to stay till they die, so it doesn't happen very often. But I, I have it on good authority. There are some ordinary people, wealthy but ordinary who rent apartments in the palace complex. Yes. The rest of them tend to be um, retired. I mean, they're people with a connection to the Royal household and especially the queen. I mean, I mentioned that, you know, uh, Elizabeth's equerry uh, uh, lived there for, for many years. Um, now that would have been a grace and favor apartment back then because the newspapers would never criticise and say, what on earth is this person, you know, living in, in this palace in Kensington, not paying any rent? Back then, the Queen had these apartments in her gift, and there wouldn't be any criticism if uh, the residents were not paying, because it was assumed that, you know, if they were friends or relatives of the Queen, then that was all OK. That changed in about 2010, when... Um, uh, Prince and Princess Michael of Kent, who live at the palace, were it became public that they were not paying very much, and so suddenly they had to pay a great deal more—not quite the market rate, but a lot more—simply because of the public pressure. And that wouldn't have happened in the past. Um, a lot of them, I mean, people always forget that the royal household, especially the, the royal family, immediate senior members of the royal family—Queen, Prince Philip, uh, Prince Charles. They, their, their connection with the military is very strong. I mean, many equerries, most equerries traditionally come from the senior regiments, the very grand regiments. They don't come from the, you know, the tank regiment. They come from the Blues and Royals. And when those people retire after working for, um, for the royal household, for the Queen, they're often offered uh, uh, apartments at Kensington. So it is a mix, a tiny number of people who just are lucky and get to pay most of them have a connection with the landlord, who is the queen. <laughs> oh, so we can all we can all dream of moving in one day. Maybe if you have a lot of money, yes. <laughs> well, keep buying those lottery tickets. Um, another question. So Haley, who is dam underscore coffee on Instagram, great handle. Uh, she says, "Will it continue to be William's residence after he becomes Prince of Wales?" After William becomes Prince of Wales, I think it will. It will certainly continue to be. 
his residence. I think, I mean, he could break with tradition, certainly, but there's no obvious indication or reason that he would break with tradition because um, people forget that from, from about 1660, roughly, when William King William bought um, what was then Nottingham House and turned it into Kensington House, from then, for 100 years, roughly, till 1760, um, Kensington Palace was the centre of the court. It wasn't Buckingham Palace as it is now. Um, but once, um, when George III decided in 1760, he didn't want to live in Kensington. It was too far from the, the, the centre of events, as it were. And I think also he, because he didn't get on with his father, he didn't want to live, he didn't want the court to be based where he had these rather unhappy memories. So George III, moved, you know, he moved the court to Buckingham Palace. Um, Buckingham Palace, and from then on, the junior royals, including the Prince of Wales, have tended to live at Kensington. Or it's almost like you know, it's the place where uh, you you wait the call. You know, you wait for the day when you will move upward. Both um, metaphorically, you become the, the monarch, and then when you become the monarch, you move to Buckingham Palace. I can't see that changing. Well, obviously, his his dad doesn't live there at the moment. So that when Prince Charles presumably would, well, I guess he'd take take charge of Buckingham Palace, but maybe he won't want to move out of his house either. You well, get you I get think, quite settled in. I think that's true. I mean, the the, the problem with Charles, I think, um, and not being at uh, at um, uh, Kensington because of his unhappy memories, uh, because of what happened with Diana. Um, because that was all played out, that you know, the disaster of their relationship was played out at Kensington. And I think that, you know, that spoiled it for him. Uh, I think that's the main reason. And it's almost as if, because poor Charles is now so elderly, I mean, he's the oldest Prince of Wales we've ever had. That has rather thrown things. You know, it's almost as if um, he's he's king, but he's because he's the, the age when he should long ago have been king, but because Elizabeth, his mother, is, is extraordinarily long-lived, um, everybody's slightly floating and waiting for something to happen, I think. But I, I don't really think that, uh, you know, I mean, the only reason that William and Catherine might move um, from, from Kensington is if they, you know, I'm touching wood now, I'm sure it won't happen, but if they fell out, you know, because they couldn't both stay there, as Charles and Diana couldn't stay there once they'd fallen out. Tricky. Well, hopefully that will not happen. But, but you, I mean, you were saying earlier with this basement project, almost that William could carry on working there when he was king. Do you, like, do you think the court could move again? It's weird for us thinking that the court used to be in Kensington Palace and then it moved to Buckingham Palace. You know, to a certain extent, there's no reason it shouldn't end up in Sandringham no. because they seem to like it up there. Um, you're absolutely right. I mean, if they decided that the court should be at, uh, at Sandringham or even possibly at Balmoral to try and perhaps make the Scots feel better about staying in the Union, there's nothing to actually stop that happening. Because in the same way that George III simply announced that he wanted to move to Buckingham Palace, um, William could say, well, I don't want to move to to Buckingham Palace, I'm going to stay here. Um, it could happen, but the court, in the sense that it used to exist, doesn't really exist now. I mean, when um, when William and later the, the, the Georges lived at Kensington, and it was the court, it was the centre of the court, um, ministers would come from Whitehall to every day to discuss policy, to discuss um, changes to the law, and... Um, because the monarch 
has so much less to do with that now. Even if William announced that the court was staying at Kensington, um, it wouldn't mean that there was a court in the political sense. It would really mean very little more than he was still living there. Because there isn't that, you know, there isn't the, the, the king's not as involved as he would have been in the early 18th century. And I guess to a certain extent, we already have Buckingham Palace as being the centre for formal occasions. But Windsor is home to the Queen. That is kind of her her preferred place to spend her time. And whether, well, I guess William's, he's got Anmer um, House as well. And, you know, so many places. Where are you going to, where are you going I to think pick? That's the, that's the problem, really, that, you know, they, they like to move around. Traditionally, they've always moved around. And as you say, Windsor, uh, I think the Queen has always loved Windsor because it's close to London. But, um, and again, this is it's rather like um, Kensington Palace. You know, visitors to Windsor Castle see the bit that they see. They can walk in the grounds. But behind Windsor Castle, away from the part of the grounds where the public are, la- are allowed, there's an enormous amount of ground. I mean, I was given a, a private tour by the Queen's gamekeeper at Windsor. And you just cannot believe how vast the estate is behind the palace, and so um, uh, behind the castle. And so the great thing for the Queen, and I think other members of the royal family, when they go to Windsor, especially, is one, it's close to London. Two, the Queen, I'm sure she doesn't do it anymore, but into her 80s, she would ride out across the park with no risk at all of anyone, you know, doing anything to to her or, or trying to talk to her. She could be completely private without having to be in the castle. Um, she could go and talk to her. I mean, the chap I knew, his wife looked after the corgis. She would turn up for tea in the morning, walk down to his his cottage um, and just sit and, and talk and, and, and have tea. Um, so I think Windsor has that great. And Sandringham is the same. They can have privacy. And people forget the royal family might live at Buckingham Palace and Kensington, but they are they're old-fashioned country people. Their interests are all surrounding fishing, shooting, dogs, uh, stalking when they're up in, in Scotland. And that actually, curiously, uh, has not changed a great deal, right down to the younger royals. That they, Those are still the things they enjoy doing. Um, and so, you know, being in London is not so exciting for them. <laughs> They'd really rather be, uh, you know, up at Sandring where they can shoot pheasants or at Balmoral or, you know, in the case of William and Catherine and the Hall. So um, they're, they're very sort of rural people, really. And it, Kensington's a slightly peculiar place because it's in the middle of this, you know, Kensington Palace Gardens and tourists wandering around and having a nice walk or come out and, and there's, a, there's a tramp on the bench or what have you for a nice chat if you're Princess Diana. But And then you've got a, there's a street with loads of embassy houses on it, I think, not far behind. Yes, and you're not far from Ken, road, yes. Kensington High Street and shops and the Daily Mail's newspaper office is there, and I think possibly a couple of others as well, and 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 nightclubs. I think some of which might have been popular with Prince Harry back in the day. Um, it's it is a very sort of, you know, it is not a private place really. You sort of behind the gates, and we have always seen sort of Diana being pictured coming out, and when Meghan was first living in the UK and living um, living at Kensington Palace, and there's that sort of initial. Um, more paparazzi pictures than you would usually probably see of the royals going about their daily life and particularly published abroad I think even more than in the in the UK it was quite difficult to live a normal life it's a bit of a fishbowl there is that fair? 
I think that's true. Um, and it's it's sort of really that that London reached Kensington. That that was the problem because when when William um, came, you know, the glorious revolution at the end of the 17th century, when James II, the Catholic king, was was kicked out of the country, William came over. He he went to live at Whitehall Palace, but because he had asthma and the river was affected affected his lungs, it was damp uh, because it was right next to the river. He looked around for somewhere in what was then countryside. And so when he found this house in Kensington, it wasn't a fishbowl because, you know, there were, there were probably three or four small houses. Uh, there were no tourists. Um, and until the 18th century, Kensington Gardens wasn't open to the public. It, it was the private garden of, of um, the royal family. And then, in fact, there was a menagerie there with deer and exotic animals um, very formal gardens, which were later uh, completely uh, removed and changed to make it look more naturalistic. Um, and right across to the Serpentine, which had been a muddy stream, and Queen Charlotte dug it out into the Serpentine we see today. That was all private. In fact, there's an interesting story. The only way you could um, <coughs> you could get in to see um, to see the gardens, you had to be dressed like a gentleman. So they had they had men in in green uniforms on the gates, and I think one day a week on a Saturday, if you uh, approached them and they looked you up and down, that was the thing. Then people forget you could tell when someone was a gentleman because they had the sort of clothes that took two hours to get into and two hours to get out of. So, uh, you know, gentleman's defined as someone who didn't do any work. He had enough money, a private income. So those people were allowed to walk around Kensington Gardens, but no one else. It was only much later that it was open to everyone. So it was a very private, it was probably very much like Sandringham, you know, when William moved there. And, and well into the 18th, the 18th century, long after William had died, up until the time of George III, even really up until the time of Queen Victoria, who, who was born there and at Kensington and lived there as a child, right up until then, that would have been a very quiet rural area. Uh, and, you know, the concept of tourists wanting to, that, that really didn't, didn't exist. So, so it was private, it was very rural, the air was very clean, it was a tiny village. So I think that was the appeal. Now, of course, if they want the same thing, they've got to go up to Sandringham or, or Balmoral. And for Megan coming in and that being her first UK home, so obviously they were there for a while, then they moved out to Frogmore and now they've, they've decamped to California via Canada for a, a different kind of a life. You know, the, a, home is, a home is part of it. There's obviously all sorts of other things going on around and about as well. But how do you, how do you see the sort of the Harry and Meghan um, movement well, I think when Meghan married Harry, um, we had all the, the usual excitement with a royal wedding that, you know, this, and this was a marvellous thing. It was something new. The royal family, you know, someone of mixed race, uh, an American, um, someone with a background, you know, people talk about Catherine Middleton being a commoner, but, you know, Catherine went to a very grand English public school. Um, she, her, her antecedents may not be aristocratic but she had quite an, an aristocratic or at least wealthy upbringing whereas Megan is a you know she was a tv star from from United States uh, very different back, sort of background so I think when she married Harry 
um, she, I, I mean, I spoke to people who said she was so excited she could hardly speak when she first went to live at Kensington Palace. But I think the great difficulty for Meghan was that um, I think she felt she had to act the part because that's her, that is what she does for a living. She is an actor. So she felt, okay, I'm, I'm a princess, I'm a British, an English princess now. I've got to play the part. And I think she found that very difficult. And I also think once she'd moved into Kensington Palace and the machine, the royal machine, began to operate, she realised that she was only a small cog in this rather large machine. She couldn't do as she pleased. She couldn't leave the palace whenever she... she you know, it's what I was saying about the gilded cage. She realised that this was... It may have been gilded, but it was still a cage. And I think the sense that... Which would have quickly become apparent to Megan, the sense that, you know, she was... Um, I don't know how to put this politely, but she didn't have the lead role. Um, the, the, the lead role was, was Catherine's. And it wouldn't matter how hard Meghan worked at being a princess. She would always be, as it were, number two or, or even lower down. And I think all that combined with the pressure of the tabloids, the, the fact that... Um, you lose your privacy to a large extent when you join the royal family. It seems like a dream. You know, traditionally, it was always every little girl's dream to be to marry a prince and become a princess. But, of course, Meghan has shown us that uh, there's a price to be paid for becoming a princess. And I think, I think Meghan really found it ex- extremely difficult because um, she didn't, she wasn't as close to things English as Catherine. Catherine Middleton seems to have fitted in very well, I, partly because she is number one, as it were. She's married to the heir. And two, because she's English, she has enough uh, similarities with William to, to find that fit easier in the palace. Um, but Meghan, I think, coming from such a different background, just found it a struggle. And then, of course, you know, the, the fantasy element, first about being a princess, which drew her in and made her very excited. I think then she thought, ah, okay, we're living in a little cottage. They lived in Nottingham Cottage in the grounds of the palace. And I think that actually, she, she wasn't too keen on that. It seemed like, you know, they were being shunted off to a, a little prefab in the grounds. But then another fantasy came in. Well, if we can move to Windsor and be away from the tabloids, and be away from, you know, the Goldswitch Bowl or every, and also away from the machine at Kensington, which doesn't allow you to do when, do what you want to do when you want to do. If we can escape that down to Windsor, we can have a kind of idyllic life. Um, but I spoke to someone who said that once they'd done all the work on Frogmore Cottage, by the way, it's, it's by no means a cottage. It's Most of us would consider it a substantial house. Anyway, they'd done all the work on the house and they moved in and it's on this big estate behind Windsor Castle. She suddenly realised it was like living in the Russian steppe. You know, she she was away from everything. She's because Megan basically is she's a very urban kind of person. She's not going to go stalking red deer in Scotland or shooting pheasants or working her two Labradors. You know, on a on a pheasant shooting day at Windsor. I think she felt bereft. So that was another fantasy that had sort of crumbled, even as she tried to pick it up. Um, and so I think she retreated to what she knew, which was the United States. And you know, I think because. Harry is to some extent, you know, sort of damaged emotionally because, you know, you would be, he was only 12 when his mother died in the most awful circumstances. 
And so I think Harry is happy to go along with this because Megan's such a strong character. You know, so when she, when she said to him, look, let's try Frogmore. Oh, no, that didn't work. Let's try the United States. I would have been very exciting for Harry in a different way because for Harry, that meant escaping the Gilded Cage, which I don't think he liked very much either. No, it certainly has seemed, seemed like he's wanted to find a different, find a different way. Um, Kensington was obviously where William and Harry grew up and the little Cambridges are growing up there now some of the time. What kind of a place is it for children? Today, because people are so much more focused on children than they were in the past, I mean, in the past, um, pre-Diana, uh, any child living at Kensington would have been looked after entirely by, by nannies and governesses uh, during the day and probably presented to its parents um, once in the evening. Um, and then, of course, you know, as soon as the child reached the age of nine or uh, probably 13 now, would be go off to boarding school. That was the way the, the royals and the aristocracy did it. But today... And, and this started with Diana, who, who wanted, who was much more hands-on with the children. She, despite the fact that Diana was from one of the most ancient aristocratic English families, she just didn't want this business of, you know, you have the children and you, don't, you only see them once a day and nannies and governesses take over the whole thing. That was the traditional royal way. Now that's changed. Catherine's the same, wants to see the children, wants to be involved. I mean, I think it's one of the good things about, the fact that the royals are now more welcoming to ridiculously what are called commoners, because you then get this, this change in attitude. And we know how damaging the traditional royal, uh, or at least aristocratic childhood can be. Uh, Lady Glen Connor wrote recently, she was um, uh, one of the Queen's ladies in waiting. She wrote her, basically her biography saying how awful it was you know, that, that she, her generation had been brought up in this dreadfully cold way uh, where you were encouraged not to be emotional about anything, the classic stiff upper lip. Um, and Lady Glencommon says her own children were brought up like this too, and she deeply regrets it. So if you're, you know, William and Catherine at, at Kensington, they will be playing with the children in a way that would be inconceivable <laughs> for previous royal generations. And you talked earlier about there being sort of, you know, each of the apartments or houses, they've got their own way in and way out. What kind of outside space have, have they got? Has apartment 1A got a nice little garden where they can put up some swings and a climbing frame and things for the children? Or does everybody have to share a sort of common, common area? Some of, the, some of the apartments have their own small gardens, yes. I mean, um, Nottingham Cottage which gets its name from the fact that the, the house itself, the palace itself, was originally Nottingham House, Nottingham Cottage, where, um, where Meghan and Harry live. That has its own garden. It's quite small, and other apartments have their own gardens. There's also a small roof garden, and there's a wonderful story I was told where um, Diana, who loves sunbathing, she was sunbathing in this small roof garden, and around the edge of it, there were sort of um, tr uh, trough, troughs and things with, with plants growing up about sort of four or five feet. And she was sunbathing on this, um, this flat roof at Kensington. <laughs> and um, uh, she, she used to like sunbathing with no clothes on. Um, and because she thought no one could see, because there were these little bushes in 
pots and things around the edge of the flat roof. She just carried on. She was fine. And then, you know, she, she was very warm. She wanted to go in and get a drink or something. So she stood up with no, with no clothes on. And she hadn't realised that the workman had moved a couple of the troughs. So there was a gap. And in the distance, um, a couple of builders had happened to look up at the same time. And when they saw her and she froze, the two builders apparently just bowed <laughs> turned away and I thought that was such a wonderful story you know they obviously realised who it was and out of sheer respect they, they bowed I just thought it was such a marvellous story so that's the kind of thing that happens in your in the little gardens that people have at um, at Kensington but, but nobody has a, a really large garden because although the palace is big once you get to the sort of outer limits of it they don't have private parts of, of Kensington gardens the William and Kate and family, when they're not in in quarantine isolation and everything elsewhere, they're the they're the they're the number ones in in Kensington Palace at the moment. Who are the other kind of key residents who make it their home at the moment? Well, there's um, Prince and Prince Michael of Kent have been there for a long time, um, and there are there are others. The Duke, the Duke and Duchess of Gloucester uh, live there. I mean, these these people they, they tend to be very very quiet. They don't, they don't, they're not prominent laws at all. I think that's what tends to happen as, uh, you know, as people get older, members of the royal family get older, they realise that the best thing to do is to keep a very low profile. You know, they, they do charitable work, um, but they, they, they avoid, I think, you know, very carefully avoid ever talking to the press or being seen at any event that might bring criticism. In other words, I think they often, they don't, the younger royals often rebelled. Anna was a, rebe- a rebel against the sort of constraints that uh, a life in the royal family and that Kensington, the constraints that brought. But people like Princess Michael and Kent, I mean, they, they just accept it. They don't re- rebel against it. So they live very quietly there. I mean, other people who live there, uh, there's the, the, so the Duke and Duchess of Kent live there. Um, that's about it, actually. I mean, Eugenie and Jack Brooksbank live in Ivy Cottage in the grounds, but they are planning apparently to move to Frogmore now that it's been vacated by Meghan and Harry. Um, most of the others, the other 50-odd people who live there, um, they are completely unknown. They're you know, former equerries, they're former advisors to the Queen, um, and you know they make sure they never get any publicity, because publicity is something they really don't trust at all. We've talked quite a lot about the current and recent residents, but are there people from the sort of in-between the Kensington Palace first becoming a, a sort of a royal home and, and today? who Have you got a favourite person who has lived there, a favourite former resident and some of their stories? Um, yeah, my favourite, George III, who, who um, was very happily married to Queen Charlotte, uh, George also didn't die until the early 19th century. He had about nine, actually, he had about 16 children. He had the most extraordinary number of children. And one of them, he had, uh, you know, six or seven sons. One of them uh, was um, a, a, a chap called Augustus. Um, and he went to live at Kensington. He lived there for many, many years. He was extremely eccentric, but, but must have been great fun. Um, he um, uh, he kept dozens of songbirds in his very large apartment at K- 
Kensington. But he didn't keep them in cages. He let them fly around <laughs> wherever they, they liked. So their, their droppings were all over this wonderful gold furniture. And these, these priceless paintings on the wall had bird droppings down the front. And it didn't bother him in the slightest. He also collected... Uh, early Bibles and religious manuscripts. He had something like 10,000 of these things. But by all accounts, he was an atheist, and yet he collected all these uh, these thousands of very valuable um, early books. Um, so he, he never met, well, he married, but he married um, a Catholic um, and was told by his father, George III, that the marriage was illegal. So he, he was also a bit of a rogue. Um, and it was, he had um, miles of very beautiful bookshelves fitted uh, for these Bibles and other books that he collected. He also had hundreds of clocks, which drove everyone mad because they all stru struck the hours, but at different times. They weren't so synchronized as it were. Um, and uh, so he was a real character. And in a final sort of act of rebellion, when he died, um, he insisted that... Um, that rather than be buried at Frogmore, you know, following the... You've got to remember at this time, it's very hard for royals not to do what royals were expected to do. We, we hadn't reached the, the 20th century where, you know, people like Diana doing going their own way. No royals ever did that, or, or extremely rarely. Um, and, and so the Duke of Sussex, Augustus, he, he said when he died, he wanted to be buried not in any royal cemetery, he wanted to be buried in the municipal cemetery at Kensal Green, and this, this, was, a, this was considered outrageous. Um, but that's where you can go and see his grave today. You know, he's one of the very few royals who, who's not married, uh, sorry, not buried in, a, in some special royal cemetery. He's just out there with, you know, with the dustmen and the other people, the tradesmen who are buried at Kensal Green. Oh, how fascinating. Yeah, he's, my favorite, he's definitely my favourite character. I don't think I've ever been to Kensal Green, so there's definitely one good reason to find a good walk in London once we're all allowed out adventuring again. Um, and just finally, um, you, we talked at the beginning about some of the people who had worked at the palace and that they, you know, they, were, they didn't really want to be in service. The idea of being in service wasn't, you know, that wasn't really the job of dreams generally. How did they feel about the actual royal family the servants that i spoke to split very distinctly into two groups the ones who'd stayed for a long time tended to be absolutely devoted to the people they worked for uh, as someone i i um, interviewed who worked for the queen mother used to wind her three or four watches every day and i said to her oh didn't you think you know, that was rather absurd that she might be able to wind them herself. And uh, this woman was indignant because it seemed like a, a almost like a criticism of, of, of the Queen Mother. And, and she wouldn't hear a word against the Queen Mother. Um, she thought the Queen Mother was, was absolutely marvelous. So I think that servants, older servants tended to, who stayed with the royals for a long time, became completely devoted to them, wouldn't hear a word against them. But there were others who worked for a shorter period, who were often, who tended to be much more critical. Uh, I mean, I, I spoke to one chap who worked in the kitchens at Kensington, and he said, he said, oh, they would take absolutely anyone without, this is back in the 1960s and 70s, they wouldn't go, they wouldn't ask for references. He said, oh, there were, there were, there were 
ex-prisoners working in the kitchens, stealing the silverware. <laughs> he said it was complete chaos. Um, so he, he didn't like it at all. He said, oh, we, you know, we, were, we never really got to see the royals. It was as if we, we were stepped over like you know, a piece of luggage on a doorstep. Uh, so that was the other side. They, they, they were the certain, and they tended not to stay such a long time. But they they were often interesting because um, once you become completely uncritical of those you work for, uh, you, all you ever get is when you're interviewing someone like that is you just get the constant refrain of how marvelous they are. So um, you know, you, it's good to have the view from both sides. And I think the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. That many of working for many of the royals was probably a very rewarding experience because if you were, if you were brought in, you know, if you were completely trusted, like for example, backstairs, Billy, um, who, who was the queen mother's um, page of the backstairs for about 50 years. Um, he was called William Talon. Now, I, when I talked to him, he was fascinating. He was devoted to the queen mother and um, he became so intimate with her that they were almost like a couple. You know, after her husband, the Queen Mother's husband, George VI, early death, um, William Talon, back says Billy, um, he used to, whenever the Queen Mother wanted to go for lunch at the Ritz, her favourite companion was back says Billy, was William Talon, because he was good company, he was devoted to her, and he'd learned the ways of the royals. He was almost, many people say, he was more like a royal than a real royal, because he, you know, he'd absorbed all this. So that's one extreme. Um, but as I said, the other extreme, there were people who thought the whole thing was absurdly deferential and, and ridiculously underpaid and, and really not very rewarding. So there are the two extremes. Well, thank you for sharing those extremes and the tales through various bits of Kensington Palace history. Absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure there's more fascinating years ahead for the palace as well to see how the, the Cambridge's court evolves and where it goes. And Definitely. It will be interesting to see. So thank you ever so much for joining us, Tom. Are you on social media where people can follow you and things? Or are you a... I'm, not afraid, so I'm, I'm afraid I'm not on social media, although although I do have a page, um, a, an author's page on um, Amazon Books, if anyone would like to. Look. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> probably even better for you than the social media. No, it's yeah. been it's been fabulous to talk to you. Listeners, thank you for sending in your questions. I hope we've managed to answer at least some of them. And you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Podsave. And we'll be back very soon with another episode. But until then, stay safe, stay well, and until next time... Podsave the Queen! Podsave the Queen!